Welcome to the Make Life Less Difficult podcast. This podcast explores what it means to make life less difficult for each other and for ourselves. We share stories of struggles and successes because we believe sharing our stories eases the difficulty of life. I'm Lisa Tilstra, your host. Let's jump in to today's conversation. My guest today is David Achata. David is a returning guest. And if you haven't listened to our first conversation, I highly recommend it. It's episode 83. David is a leadership and team development coach, the author of several business leadership books, and he brings over 20 years of leadership experience into his work. He's experienced multiple career changes, moving across the United States and back, supporting his mother through the end of her life, and so much more in his life. David is a great storyteller, an inspiring leader, and a man who practices what he teaches. In our conversation today, David shares reflections on his most recent book, Executive Retreats for Busy Business Leaders, How to Achieve More by Working Less. This is a fantastic book, reminding us of the value of intentional time away. More than that, though, David shares how he realized after publishing the book that his number one audience was himself, hence the title of this episode, Writing a Book to Yourself. David, thank you so much for jumping into another conversation here. Thank you for your authenticity and vulnerability, and thank you for sharing your thoughtful wisdom and reflections, both here and in your books. You can find links to David's books, his website, and his social media pages in the show notes. David, welcome back to the Make Life Less Difficult podcast. Thanks, Lisa. It is great to be back. I've thought about this for probably a week, and this probably will be the high point of my week this week. So I'm really glad to be here again. Awesome. I always feel this deep sense of gratitude as well when I can say, welcome back. Yeah. (laughs) You've been here before. (laughs) We've had a wonderful conversation, and now we get to jump in and, and go different places. So it feels extra special. Oh, thank you. Does that happen very often where people come back for another one? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, um, I've, I'm starting to have a few more just this last week. I've had a couple second conversations. I've had a few people that have been on, um, multiple times and it's fun. Wow. Like, I really like the experience of having continued conversations because, you know, and we talk for about an hour and there's always more. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I like yeah, it. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to pick up the conversation. It'll be, it'll be cool to, build on some of what we talked about. It's been about a year now. It has. Yeah. So with that, David, as we jump in, you had, before we started recording, you had suggested a potential title for this podcast that really (laughs) piqued my interest. And that suggested title is writing a book to yourself. Mm -hmm. And so I would love to ask you, what does this mean? Writing a book to yourself. <laughs> well, it's funny that just came to me this morning as I was thinking about this because my new book, uh, I think, was written mostly to me, and I didn't, I didn't know that at the time when I was doing it. I just believed it needed to be done, and I have experimented with a lot of writing projects, and I've got a few books now that are out there. I'm, I'm proud of all of them, but. I've never really thought of the things that I've written as 
specifically for me. And as I as I reflected on why I wrote my latest project, even though the title is for aimed at executive leaders, as I've reflected on, I realized, oh, I probably wrote this because I needed to remember and intentionalize all these things in order for me to, in a way, kind of set myself up for more stability and success in the next season of my life. Mm-hmm. Well, in your your book, which is, if I were to put in my own words, about about taking time away, mm-hmm. and and yes, you're specifically speaking to executive leaders, and also I think it can be applicable for pretty much everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can. <laughs> um, the intensity of our world and the drive to just go, 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 and and the many practical demands that so many people have on their lives, it can be, it, it, it's easily forgotten to mm-hmm. take time away. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And that's where the idea for me came from was it's just been my own blind spot through most of my life up until probably the last three to four to five years, maybe where I am just a driven person, wake up and do a lot of things. And I've realized at various points in my life that it was taking a toll on me personally, on my family, and it wasn't allowing me to be my most settled and steady or proactive version of of myself. And, um, And so I wanted to write something that represented that but also it's it is funny how we tend to find each other those of us who are alike you know and if if i observe and look at the track record of my life and my work coaching leaders and even doing leadership development for companies by and large most of the people that i've worked with have the same problem or the same problems that i've had and that is with not being able to pull yourself out of it because a little more has to be done. Somebody's going to expect something. There's no one else that's going to do it if I don't. And so I wanted to clear some space to really reflect on what does it look like to get away so that you can um, not only come back and be at your best, because I think that's um, even that statement is just so unhealthy. Like we don't get rest so we can produce more. That's our American assumption. You know, (laughs) it sounds nice up front. Oh yeah. Like rest so you can be, do better work. Not really. Um, It's actually break away so that you can be more human and in line with how you're designed. And therefore you can move out into the world um, in health Mm. as opposed to and for greater productivity. I mean, that's true. We want to do great work, but we want to move out to the world with health, especially right now when the world is so crazy with, you know, lack of lack of jobs, people working like crazy, the ones who are working. And so the ones who are in it really need to be healthier. Yeah. Yeah. It's such an interesting point. And I remember reading somewhere else now that you mentioned that about this kind of warped idea we have of taking time off. Oh yeah, go go take time off so you can come back and be more productive and yeah, like you said, <laughs> do more. And and it, it's like, wait, this is actually not the 
purpose behind taking time away and taking time off and vacation and holiday and retreats. There's a deeper purpose than coming Mm -hmm. back and doing more. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I know. (laughs) I found some data. I threw it in the opening chapters of the book um, that, you know, the average leader in our company, in our, in our culture, I should say, um, works at least 51 hours a week, uh, but average 51 to 60. Mm -hmm. And some of course are tipping the scales and going even longer. And then the average American worker is working 39 and a half. And so the whole idea is we're all, any of us who are leading something, we are automatically, the data shows, putting in 20% more time than everybody else, at least 20% more. Yeah. And so instead of putting in more time, what if you just took that extra 20% and got more intentional with it? So that when you are there and you are on, you're multiplying health as opposed to the frantic pace, you know, that society says we have to work at. Yeah. So David, let me jump back to the comment you made a few minutes ago about seemingly finding others right through your work, leaders that you've coached Mm -hmm. who have a very similar drive and push and will over Mm -hmm. overwork. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And yeah. you you relate, you see, like, okay, this is in me too. Like for you as well as for others, um, are there trends? Like, what are the trends you see of where that comes from? Right. I mean, some people say, Oh, it's just in my personality. Is it is it personality hmm. driven? Is there more to history and upbringing and expectations? Mm-hmm. What what is yeah. it that produces that kind of tendency and drive? I see two trends. Uh, One is just personality. Some people are wired that way. And another one is story. Um, There are, there are people who can work hard and work at that pace and be healthy and peaceful. Mm -hmm. And so this isn't a stab to say people shouldn't do this. Like I was just up in um, Chicago a couple weeks ago, working with the Kraft Heinz company and uh, one of their executives came in and sat with us and he told us some of his story. He came from a, a communist country and remember being young and having to stand in a bread line for six hours and uh, eventually leaving communism and just carried with him this drive to do better. Hmm. And he runs marathons. He works, you know, sometimes 12 hours a day. And he comes home and dances with his wife every night. <laughs> and and he is just wired that way. Mm-hmm. And and it seems to be working for him. Um, and that's kind of an extreme example, I think. But there are plenty of other people who are wired to just do a lot. They have high capacity. Um, and so I think there's that innate wiring to personality for some people. But I think on the other hand, there's some story factors in there. And I think that it's a Carl Jung idea. I I may have referenced in our last conversation, but I've thought about it now for two years, probably. And it's this idea that we tend to see in the world things that are in us. Mm -hmm. And so as an example, I have a green Subaru I drive and it's got the big engine. 
when they still made the big engine for them, you know, big engine for them. So now whenever I see a Subaru out back with a 3.6 liter engine, I notice it. I don't notice other cars. I just notice that one (laughs) because I have it, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's this, it's this idea that in recovery settings, they say, if you spot it, then you've got it. Hmm. And so even from a sense of disorder in the world, the, the things in the world that are in disorder, not always, but many times we're seeing it because it's a disorder that's within us. And so our drive to fix it is actually a response to us hoping we can fix ourselves. Yeah, it's a lot to take in. <laughs> it is a lot to take in. Um, I mean, have you seen that with some of the people you've worked with? That What they're trying to do in the world is actually an internal issue for them? Oh, yeah, I've seen it myself. <laughs> oh, and you? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it It resonates so, so very much. And I remember a, a pivotal point, probably around 2016, 2017, I was working with a therapist and it was this significant paradigm shift where I realized there were times, and this is on a, a personal note, I would be extremely critical of John as my spouse. And I remember the moment, like I can visualize where we were when I was able to articulate to him, when I'm saying this critical thing to you, I actually feel that way towards myself. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) It was like, it's amazing how long I was unconscious of that and then becoming conscious of it and then articulating it is one of those things that I would say is difficult and also extremely impactful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think that if we can, you know, from an emotional health perspective, understand that when we see it before we rush to fix it, maybe we need to turn inward and say, why am I seeing this? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like in the book, there's a quote in there from, I think it's Rumi. Mm-hmm. It said, you know, I, I used to be so wise um, I wanted to change the world, <laughs> but now I'm so wise. I want, I work to change myself, something like that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, to be able to slow down and say, wait a minute, this may be something that's going on here inside of me. And so, so maybe I should slow down and work on that first. Yeah. And you know, something you, you bring out in the book, I forget which chapter, but you're ta- you talk a little bit about, um, adult stage development mm-hmm. and Keegan's work and, you know, moving through those different stages. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that comes to mind for me where oftentimes, you know, we start out in the world, leaders start out and just doing the work and mm-hmm. that's all the consciousness is right. And there there's external factors that are, pushing and driving. And then, you know, like not everybody kind of moves through these phases, but moving into a self authoring phase, or it comes more from inside and then the self transforming Mm -hmm. phases. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that and how you see that linked into this growth and, and shift. I love that you noticed that um, the people I've talked to have read it 
there's a few of them who reference that. And, you know, it's this whole idea that when we're younger, uh, funny, I, I'm finishing up Malcolm Gladwell's book called Outliers right now. And um, it's, you know, a couple years old, but I just finished a chapter on the public school system. And um, the findings of the, some of the studies he's referencing is actually public schools aren't the problem. It's summer vacation that's the problem. And the reason summer vacation is a problem is because it's during the summertime when we default to how our socioeconomic class, family of origin, um, affect how we uh, learn during those months. Hmm. And so there are schools out there who are changing how they're educating people to be actually year round so that scores stay the same. Because what happens in wealthier families or higher class families, what they're doing is parents are going with kids places. They're making sure they do summer camps and learning opportunities. Mm-hmm. Whereas the kids from a lower socioeconomic class, they're just coasting. Yeah. And so what's happening is that we're defaulting to our family of origin or socioeconomic class. And so back to some of the piece that you're talking about that I referenced in the book about how the human develops is that, you know, when we're younger, we are taught how to reproduce answers. And um, and then when we we grow, we start to get sort of this idea that, um, oh, actually, I have ideas and I can bring those those ideas into the world. And even at further stages, what happens is that we get to the place where we think to ourselves, I think I could be wrong. I could be deceived. And we're we're more able to step out of our own skin and identify our own blind spots and failures. And what happens to many people, myself included, is um, because we want to protect ourselves and we don't want to see our blind spots, we tend to turn ourselves off to feedback. Um, and I did not, I, I think I briefly referenced Janet Hagberg's book called Stages of Power. Real Power, I think is what it's called. Also about how people grow and change. And what Janet Hagberg talks about is how life deals us these nasty blows and we go through a wall type phase where we have to face all of our brokenness. Mm-hmm. And for people who successfully go through a wall type stage, they enter into what she calls a life of, of love. And in her business framework, what she talks about is how we go into power uh, by character. And so we become a particular kind of person. And because of the bumps and bruises, because the wall, even back to Keegan's work, what happens is that we're able to say, I've been here before. I received the feedback. I see my blind spots. I'm going to get humble and say, I do have good ideas here, but there's also also some real flaws. One more thought on this, Lisa. I was driving down, working with a company yesterday. I was out driving to Huntsville and I was listening to a podcast and um, I forgot the name of it. It was really great though. But the whole idea was to pay attention to um, how we're, we're kind of consumed. I think it's pretty cool. This idea that we have a doppelganger in the world mm-hmm. and what this person said, she had written a book about it. What she said was that the reason this is a fascinating subject for us is because it challenges all our notions about what success looks like. <laughs> so for instance, by the way, I have met my doppelganger. He is a physicist in Massachusetts. Oh. His name is also David. Really? 
Yeah. I met him at a company once. I walked into the room at the water cooler and another scientist walked through. This is with a semiconductor company. Another scientist walked through and said, Hey, David, how's it going? I was thinking, have I met this guy before? I got a cup and I went into the room and the other David walked in and Lisa, he looked like me. Wow. He had glasses. He had tan skin. He was the same height. We compared notes. He was the same weight. Listen to this. He was within six months of my age. He had one, he had one family member that was of uh, South American descent like me and one family member who was of European descent like me. My goodness. It was so wild. I have a picture. It's way back on my Instagram page somewhere of the two of us standing beside each other. Wild. But, but back to Keegan. Okay. This is why I'm bringing it all up is, well, I look at the other David and I think to myself, well, if I'd had a different family, I could have been a physicist. Mm-hmm. If I'd had a different education, if I, if I could actually change my assumptions about how the world works, I could actually be that guy if I wanted to. And by the way, he could be me if he wants to. And back to Keegan's work, okay? And this, I think, has implications for all of us, but for leaders, which is what the book is about. And it's this whole idea <laughs> that um, the assumptions you carry into the world aren't universally true. And your doppelganger can prove it, you know? Mm-hmm. So for me, because of my own broken story, I have an assumption that the world is actually against me and the system will not work for me. Therefore, I have to challenge it. I have to do all these like sneaky, smooth things, ways of talking, ways of interacting with people. Well, the other David doesn't care those assumptions mm-hmm. and he's fine. He probably has more money than me too. <laughs> And so for leaders, I think the implication here is really important. And it's this idea, your assumptions are not universally true. Mm. And the older you get and the deeper you can go within yourself, you can hold your assumptions, or maybe another way to see it is the um, lens through which you view the world. You can hold it a little more loose Mm. and accept an openness that maybe there's something that you're missing. Which, by the way, is a key ingredient to be able, being able to build a great team and build a great company. Yeah. But yeah, I met my doppelganger. Is that wild? <laughs> that is wild. That is wild. I want to go back and look that for that picture. That I'll is- find it and text it to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So cool. So yeah. I'm I'm so intrigued. I'm intrigued with so many things, David, and, and I have all these different questions flooding into my brain. So <laughs> I, as I sort through them, I want to give you a chance to share a little bit more about how this book about executive retreat and going away mm-hmm. has now, you, you now see it as something that was for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, maybe what I can do is tell you about what the book is about and how the idea formed. And then looking back on it, how I think it was for me. Um, it's about four disciplines that I think that leaders in particular, anybody, but leaders it's written to, um, can be steady and be at their best. Uh, The first one is go away alone. And it's the idea that you're not a human doing or a human being. You have uh, value beyond your ability to produce money. So it's a big one. The second one um, is go away with a guide. And it's this idea that we all have values. And if we can get clear on those, we need to get people in our lives to 
help continue to point us back to what we say is important, Mm -hmm. both in a personal sense, but also in a leadership sense. For instance, um, you're the only one in, in the seat you're in, and therefore you have to do it like you uniquely can do it or else you can't sustain it. Yeah. People think leaving a company will help them clean things up and maybe, but it's kind of like when you move into a neighborhood, um, the best time to meet people is when you move in and when you leave. Um, once you're established there and you've put a pattern in place, you're kind of stuck with that label in your neighborhood. And I can't tell you how many leaders I've worked with who got a job because they worked like a dog mm. and they can't get away from the stamp that's on them now as much as they want to because mm. they didn't come into it like they uniquely could. They came into it like somebody else and now they're stuck leading like somebody else and they're exhausted because it's not like them. So leading in your unique way, having a guide to point you back to leading out of your own values and your own voice, which which uh, I think I talk about in the book is your your feelings and your thoughts. That's your voice. That's what gives a person a voice, which, by the way, the hallmark of emotional health is being able to identify your feelings. So let's go away with the guide. Third one is go away with your team. And this one's more common. Um, most leaders understand the concept of the executive offsite. And I do talk about it in, in, in the book, but more what I, I dwell on is how do you develop what's called social resilience as a team? And it's this idea that um, we humans don't possess armor or natural venom or stabbing utensils as appendages <laughs> like bugs do. Um, <laughs> but it's our ability to actually band together that gives us our strength. And the last one, go with your family. It's interesting to be in a business book, but as I began to reflect on the stories of my clients, my own story, and even some of the stories we see in the world about how expensive it is to have your family fall apart, I began to realize this should be there. And it's the whole idea that your organization is made up of family members. And therefore, the pace that you set as the leader is the relational culture that will multiply within the organization. So it actually is to your company's benefit for you to love on your family, especially in today's work workforce, you know, market. Like I just found some um, data by a guy named Ron Hetrick. And um, there's 10 million jobs right now in this country that are open. 10 million. Hmm. Wow. Um, of the 10 million, 4 million need to be filled by people with college degrees. 6 million need to be filled by people who don't have college degrees. Hmm. And of those 6 million, There are plenty within there. I can't quote the exact number, but there are plenty in there um, that aren't being filled at all. And so the people that are working there are working harder. Yeah. And so it's more important than ever that we create a workplace culture that people love. They want to be there. We're more flexible to work with their schedules. What he said in um, in his material was, for the first time in the history of this country, this is a worker's market. Hmm. It's not an employer's market. (laughs) And so because of that, we have to shift how we treat the people we work with. Yeah. So anyway, so that's the book and a lot of great stuff within each of those chapters. But, you know, the idea came from um, a conversation I had with a good friend of mine, um, maybe a year and a half ago. And he was asking me what I really enjoyed. And I was 
thinking back to one of the retreats I did with a, one of my CEO clients a couple of years ago. And I mentioned him in the book and uh, he was about to take a CEO role of a new company. And he wanted some time to get clear on his values, to figure out what was most important so that he could keep healthy and keep his family. Mm. And so we did a, um, a, a session up in the mountains and we did some mountain biking in the afternoons. We had spent mornings working on values, working on planning for his first 90 days in that role. And it was just so fun and so life-giving. And I was talking to my friend about it and he goes, why wouldn't you do more of that? And I was like, you know what? That's the most obvious question I've never asked myself. (laughs) And I have treated retreats with clients for years just as like an added bonus. Like, oh, yeah, we get to go do this fun thing. Mm -hmm. And I realized this is actually really life-giving to me. I do really good with deeper time with people. Even my friends and neighbors will say, people are always coming to your house, David. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just something I love doing. And though my my executive clients don't necessarily come to my house, the point is I love deeper time with people to work on what's important. And so as I reflect back on why I wrote it, um, I realized now, I mean, in October of 2023, oh, I wrote all this stuff down because I needed it. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason I enjoyed it. It's because I needed it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, yeah, so many things have happened so, since our last interview. But probably the biggest one to share is in November of last year, 2022, I began to notice uh, some chest pain I'd had for for years off and on, but it was getting more pronounced. Mm-hmm. And then for the first time in my life, I began to experience panic attacks where my left arm would go numb. um, My breathing would get shallow. I wouldn't breathe. And so it sent me into a lot of personal work for a few months. What amounted to be about um, specifically on that subject, like, why am I getting these panic attacks? And it took about nine months for me to to get out of it, to get out of that, that way. And what I realized, though, in the midst of all that personal work was the disciplines to help me get out of the panic attacks I'd already written about. Wow. (laughs) I needed I needed time alone. What I've been doing for years, Lisa, I was running, mountain biking, hiking, doing all this active stuff. But what I realized through my own personal work, because it it actually made me disassociated from my world. Hmm. I wasn't doing it for the sake of being peaceful in nature. I was doing it because it helped amp me up to get my mind off of the craziness in my life. So I had to change how I went away alone. I I actually stopped going out into the wilderness to disassociate, which is what I did have done my whole life. Instead, I started going into the wilderness to get into my body, to get peaceful, to actually pray. Mm -hmm instead of problem solve, which is what I was doing. I was thinking to myself, I'm so spiritual. I'm asking God how to handle all these things. No, I was actually just in my head, problem solving. That's what I was doing. (laughs) And that's Mm -mm. not restful. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Um, And the same is true with go away with a guide. I realized, oh, I actually have been seeking out guides for the last few years. And all the wisdom I've written down from them and the time I've spent with them is actually really necessary right now. So I'm back to my journals. Ah, I've already learned everything I needed to know 
to get out of this. And the other disciplines, the same thing. And so I realized looking back on it, oh, in a way it was my intuition preparing me for this moment to give me all the tools, all the answers I needed to deal with the issue that was causing the the panic attacks. Isn't that cool? It is. It's amazing. And I just want to take a moment to affirm your your willingness, your openness, your ability to receive those messages for yourself. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's fascinating to me, right? Because you wrote this book and then in retrospect to allow that to turn and go inward, there's a there's a courage and a humility there, like a vulnerable humility there, David, that I really respect, respect and admire. And I think is, is, is a, a trait that leaders, leaders need. Yeah. Well, thank you. That's humbling to hear that. And it makes it, it's, it's also really cool hearing your story and hearing you share these pieces, having just read the book as well because it's a it's a fantastic book and it really lays out why this is important and the value and a little bit of structure around going away alone going away with a guide be it a mentor or a coach going away with your team with your family and and again like for me at least it just it takes the depth of it all to a new level hearing your personal journey and how you are seeing this and living into this in your own life. Yeah. Yeah. I'm getting better, Lisa. Um, I wasn't good at this um, naturally. It was just more a necessity. Like I realized, for instance, when my daughter was six months old, I'd never spent two nights in a row with her. Mm. And that was my wake up call. Like I've got an issue here. Hmm. And I was just, you know, for whatever reason, wired so hard to do a lot. And, um, I wrote about this in the very, in the first part to this book, which was the one we interviewed about last year, which is, um, embrace what you don't know about. I think it was really just my own efforts to cover up my own shame, Hmm. you know, which is about inadequacy. Like I will prove to the world that I can go faster, work harder than other people. And uh, really what that got me was just exhausted. And um, and so I think it's cool, you know, that back to the idea that life's going to deal you surprises and hard blows. And we have opportunity, you know, with, with each of those to back up and say, you know, like James Clear in his um, new book talks about doing a post-mortem on your um any any plans that you have Hmm. like if this were to fail why would it fail Hmm. and i've started doing better doing that on the front end of my plans i have gotten pretty good at doing it on the back end when my plans don't work like why do they not work Hmm. and almost every time there's a commonality and the commonality is i didn't do enough personal work to look at myself and the factors that are within me that could lead this to break down. And in particular, the factors in me that could lead this, whatever this is, to break down, just have to do with my own 
um, well-being, emotional health, peace, stability. So I'm a big fan of people getting peaceful and stable. It's been the journey of my life, really. And I'm, I wouldn't say I'm all the way there, but I'm, I think I'm well on my way. Well, and, and as I listen to you share again, like these pieces, one of the things you talk about in the chapter in the book about going away with, with your team is using stories, inviting people to share stories about themselves in order to connect. And that is something I'm so passionate about. I mean, it's behind the whole reason why I do this podcast is because these stories, this is how we get to know each other. This is how we get to, this is how we see each other and connect as humans. And there are so many people out there who might be wrestling and struggling with the exact same things. And yes, their their situation is unique and their story is is different. And yet, as you're sharing your story, someone's listening and saying, wow, I thought I was the only one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's so, I mean, it's transformational, right? I mean, you, yeah. you talk about that around story as well. It's literally transformational mm-hmm. of being with each other as we share those stories. Yeah, there's a quote I share at the end of my um, my executive meetings after we've done uh, some time telling stories. And there's a lot of great ways to do it. But, you know, the quote is by Kurt Thompson. And he wrote a book called The Anatomy of the Soul. The Soul of Shame also. He calls himself a, a neurotheologian. <laughs> and so here's the quote. Um When a person tells their story and is truly heard and understood, both she and the listener undergo actual changes in their brain circuitry. They feel a greater sense of emotional and relational connection, decreased anxiety, and greater awareness, a greater awareness of and compassion for others suffering. And I shared this quote a couple of weeks ago with a company and the leader of the team at the conclusion of when we shared some stories, she goes, I can feel my brain circuitry changing right now (laughs) Um, because it was a new team and she knew that trust was essential. And um, it's funny how we call conflict resolution and trust and some of those things, soft skills. But, you know, I think that we probably need to change that language because they're really the skills that lead to us producing any hard outcomes. (laughs) Absolutely. And so hats off this, this particular team leader. She said, we have a new team. We've got a billion dollars worth of business. We've got to organize a lot's writing on this. And to her credit, she said, there is nothing else more important in these days we're going to spend together than building trust. So there's a lot of great ways to build trust on a team. And at the foundation is uh, knowing one another's stories. Simple. You know, where are you from? How many siblings you have? What, what was hard in your story that you've overcome? There's more fun ways to do it. Like if your life were um, a movie, what genre would it be? What are three key stories that represent, you know, you, your best in terms of highs and lows and how you've overcome things that have shaped you to become who you are? Bring an object, you know, to describe mm-hmm. something about your story and do some show and tell with this. And it's interesting how what we usually allocate for five to 10 minutes for people to tell their story almost always goes a little bit longer. And as much as I want to slow it down um, to kind of 
check with the leader. Is this okay that we're taking time? The mm. leader always says we need this. Oh, yeah. And um, after a good storytelling session, man, people are uh, connected in such a different way. But I also share in the book about other things you can do to build social resilience. Simple, simple things. You know, like what what can you do to help each other know you can lean into one another? Like you can go have fun. You can go take a cooking class. You can share best jobs and worst jobs. You can talk about highs and lows of your year. Like the list goes on and on and on. And to people like me and you, this comes like second nature because we're in this all the time. But it is fascinating how many people are just at a loss on what to do because their mind is so in the zone of fixing problems. Like I was with a company, um, just the one I mentioned I was with yesterday. I was training their managers on listening skills and in particular empathetic responses. Mm-hmm. And I was referring in the session to a guy named Julian Treasure and his, his book called How to Be Heard. And um, he talks in there about listening pitfalls. And the, the game that I created, and again, this is back to trust building, okay? And the game that I created was share something recently that's happened to you through pitfall language and your partner has to only can only listen with empathetic responses or active listening. So question asking that kind of thing. And then at the conclusion of the exercise, you have to name what was the pitfall and pitfall language for Julian treasure has to do with hyperbole. So exaggerated language. Mm. Um, it has to do with, uh, what was the other one? It's slipping my mind now, but hyperbole is an easy one. Oh, need to be right. And people pleasing. That was the other mm-hmm. two need to be right. And people pleasing. So I did it with this one manager. And because he was the odd man out. And I said, I said, um, yeah, this last week, my daughter came home and the mud flaps were ripped off her car. And there was a big scrape all down the side. And he goes, hyperbole. And I was like, you're supposed to empathetically listen. But you just named what it was. I said, let's start over and try again. So I said, I was talking to my son as we were driving to school the other day. And I was telling him, Isaac, you've got to get up earlier. If you keep doing this, you're going to be late. He goes, need to be right. I was like, you're supposed to empathetically respond. So I did the third one. He was about to do it again. And, and he goes, you know what? I am so wired to answer and fix. I do not know how to empathetically respond. And so what I'm telling you right now with this story is the issue that people face just in their normal life, but definitely on their teams. We want to fix. Yep. We want to rush to answer and action. We don't know how to build trust. And so that's what that's what you know that section was about and how storytelling really, you know, gets us a long way down the road with that. <laughs> Isn't that yes. funny though? <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. I yeah, I have so many stories too where I'm trying to help people practice empathy and yeah just want to fix the problem (laughs) i know i know and it's such good intention (laughs) yeah (laughs) but how hard it was like i did the third pitfall experience with the with this particular manager and he was about to answer and say what it was and he he sat there he smiled he he almost like bit his fist and he goes (laughs) i'm sorry (laughs) like i said something that happened and he answered i'm like, I, I'm sorry, I guess <laughs> he couldn't do it. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a skill. And I think that's what, that's what it's, um, 
yeah, it's a, it's a literal skill, right? Back to your point of we call these things soft skills, and yet they're really difficult. It's amazing how difficult it can be to develop those skills of active listening, of responding with empathy only, right? Like, and and we can get to the problem solving, right? Especially in business, there's problems that need to be solved, but to stay and pause and be in that moment of empathy, it's really a it, it's it's a hard skill to develop, like literally a hard <laughs> skill to develop. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is a hard skill. Well, you know, and back to the book and and what you know, my intention was to write about it is I was talking to these managers and saying it's because we have these moments of struggle that we're able to identify it when we're in the real world. Like that's where the practice is valuable. And what I write about in the book is how what changes what changes us is not information. It's time. It's time with people who embody the information. And so as I have done my own work in the last few years to seek out coaches, to seek out mentors and learn from them. Sure, we do time on the phone, but I actually get on a plane and I go spend a few days with them. And it's time with somebody where I am like, oh, they do it differently. That's how they say things. That's how they do things. Maybe I can say things and do things like that, but I wouldn't have gotten unless it was time with them. And um, so like when my clients come away with me, they kind of joke with me now because they've done it with me a few times. When I get out, as an example, we start our days with the emotion wheel. How are you feeling today? They're like, uh, this is interesting. I've never thought of it like this. And now what happens when I go to lead their teams and executive meetings, as an example, I have the those CEOs will say, hey, David, can you start the day with the emotion wheel with the whole team? Mm-hmm. Because they see the benefit of it. Yeah. See, I could have said to them, Hey, go check out the emotion. It'll be helpful to you. Here's what it does. But until I've done it with them and they've seen me do it with them, they don't feel the impact and therefore they can't reproduce that type of awareness on their teams. Yeah. So it's time to go that changes us. And that's another reason I wrote it is to help people understand you got to make time with the people most important to you. If you yourself are going to change. Yeah. 100%. 100%. I want to, I want to ask you one more thing, particularly around the story, because one of the things you point out is that you will spend time with the leader and help them kind of craft and develop their story because it sets the tone for the team. And oftentimes what I find is leaders feel this pressure to not be too vulnerable not share anything too personal. I have to, I have to come across as strong and I've got it all together and I I don't have any weaknesses, right? And there's whether it's real or perceived, it, there is sort of this desire and 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 it can be yeah, it can be quite strong. So I'm curious of what's your take and how do you invite people into a space of vulnerability and sharing those mm-hmm. those those stories that do and I think you even use this language in the book make you feel like you're naked in front of people <laughs> right yeah um yeah a lot of thoughts come to my mind one is I think we have to do our own personal work and understand the difference between clean pain and dirty pain hmm. 
So I think what many people are afraid of is letting their dirty pain out in public. And mm-hmm. dirty pain is things that we've gone through that haven't we haven't dealt with, we haven't resolved, we haven't made sense of. Um, that's why it's important we all do our own work so dirty pain doesn't get spread. Um, clean pain is actually our aches and, and scrapes and scars that we've faced and dealt with and we're able to talk about. And that's really what I encourage people to share in those types of environments. It, sometimes dirty pain comes out, but thankfully we're able to deal with it and talk about it in a way that's safe. Um, but usually it's the clean stuff that you know I encourage people to talk about. Um, in the introduction to the book, um, a former client of mine, a good friend of mine now, um, who used to be the uh, president of a, a large semiconductor company, uh, he he actually uh, helped me in a way edit this book. Um, I said, "Hey, your mind is so technical." He's an engineer. I said, "Would you read through this and let me know what does and doesn't make sense?" And so he gave me a lot of great feedback, so the technical mind could receive this. And so back to story. One of the things that he noted was he said, these concepts just feel so squishy and gross to somebody who's technical like me. He goes, what if you communicated it through the lens of the scientific method? Mm. He said, so do an experiment, you know, track your results, see the outcomes, and then tweak and repeat. And another good piece of feedback he gave me about this was he said, um, a lot of people fear that coming across as humble will mean that they're indecisive. Mm-hmm. And he mm-hmm. said, it's not true. Mm-hmm. You can be humble and still be decisive. Yeah. So I'm able to, as an example, share, because I'll also share when I'm in a team setting, because they're they have to trust me too. Mm-hmm. I'll share with them what it was like growing up as a brown kid of mixed race in East Tennessee and the racism I experienced how that created a real fracture in my identity at a young age mm. how much work it's taken me to figure out who is David really, who is the whole of who David is. Mm-hmm. And I share that not, I mean, every, every so often I'll get a little teary eyed because it's part of my story. It's painful, but the pain doesn't control me anymore. Mm. And so I'm able to share it from the perspective of it's clean. Mm-hmm. I've dealt with it. And thank you for listening to me. Yeah. And just so you know, this is who's standing in front of you. And um, and it models the way to say, oh, I can be vulnerable too. I can share the clean pain in my life, how it's hurt me, how I've grown from it. And I can say, thank you for listening mm-hmm. and keep things going. And the thing is, it's so important on teams and in organizations because the behavior that we set multiplies. So if we as the leader show dirty pain mm-hmm. and how it smears all over the place and breaks things down, well, guess what everybody else is going to think is acceptable. Mm-hmm. But if we can embody what it looks like to say, hey, here's an area that has been hard for me and I'm working on it. Mm-hmm. Well, now people know, oh, that's how you do it. Mm-hmm. I can do that too. And I can actually be comfortable when somebody else does it with me. Yeah. So that's kind of how I prepare people to be vulnerable, what it looks like to be humble, yet decisive. Yeah. 
and to try and retry their methods to where they get the outcomes they're after. And the outcomes that I would hope is a team that has that social resilience, what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I really like the, the clean versus dirty pain. I have sometimes I've heard, and I've sometimes talked about scars versus wounds and, you know, telling Mm -hmm. a story from a place of a scar versus a wound. Um, But that clean versus dirty pain is, um, yeah, it's a really poignant way to describe that and, Mm -hmm. and a way to, I think about even there's a couple stories that I have shared over the years that, that sometimes emotion still comes up for me, but it does, it does feel clean. Right. And sometimes my, Mm -hmm. my listeners may not quite know, right. Like I can be a vulnerable and uncomfortable and sometimes awkward space for them if if the emotion comes up for me but to reassure them that it's okay right that i'm sharing Mm -hmm. this pain Mm -hmm. with them versus i've been in situations where it, it feels quite uncomfortable because it feels like this person is falling apart and we all have to try to figure out how to hold them and the space (laughs) and um yeah so that's it's really valuable. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think that it's important to understand, you know, back to building that resilience on a team. There are some of us, and my hand is up, by the way, I'm the person who does this, who is wired to just try to hold everything together, make sure everybody's okay. And what I'm just learning, even recently within the last month, as I've been working on some things with my um, spiritual director I work with, is the distinction between a brush fire and a wildfire mm. and how brush fires are actually healthy for the health of the forest. Um, it's, it's actually good to allow a little bit of messiness on our teams. Mm. Um, if we prevent a little bit of messiness, it actually allows buildup so that one day a wildfire tears everything apart. So to create safe spaces like this with your team and for yourself are so essential um, because it makes you healthier as opposed to not dealing with your stuff. One day you have a meltdown and it takes other people down with it. And so I don't, I don't, I'm not an advocate for that. <laughs> I don't think you are either. Um, so, which is why I wrote this is I think these are disciplines that could help leaders be at their best and, as, and at their healthiest to be able to multiply the important work they're doing in this world. I mean, like some of the environments I work, I work in, I would have never thought of this years ago, but like I, I work with my good friend, Sam McKee. Um, we've been working with Bridgestone Firestone company for five years and um, with his company, Evergreen Leadership. And one in my opening speech uh, to the teams that we work with, um, I'll share with them how I went and saw how they made a tire for the first time, how they put a QR code on it and how they can tell every hand that's been on the tire at every point in its creation. Wow. And it occurred to me, everything important to me on this world rides on a tire. You too. Mm-hmm. And so even those who live in the world of manufacturing are doing something important. The lumber company I work with, it occurred to me, everything important to me in this world is sitting under a piece of lumber. Mm-hmm. It's important. It's done right. And so it's not just work that needs to be done. It's leaders need to be healthy to sustain important work that changes the world. And I would just hope, I hope that people can read this and say, 
I'm putting that stuff in place because I want to be at my best to do the important mission that I do, as opposed to seeing it as just work. It's an important mission in this world. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. David, as expected, there's so much more that we could talk about. And Mm -hmm. I want to proactively invite you back for part three. (laughs) (laughs) Part three. Hopefully in a year, I won't have any panic attack stories to tell. (laughs) We don't have to wait a full year. But (laughs) I'm curious, before we wrap our conversation today, I am curious if there's just from a practical perspective, um, what, how are you, how are you stepping in to the practice of retreats? Um, Like, is it something that you have on the calendar? Is it like, is there a particular time length of time or are they sometimes shorter, sometimes longer, just kind of practically, practically, how does this play out in your life? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have a system that exists now that hasn't always existed. Um, So I'll tell you the weekly system, the quarterly system and the yearly system. (laughs) Yes. Um, uh, Maybe I'll start actually yearly. So at the beginning of each year, I take a half a day to a day away uh, religiously on the first day of the year. Mm. And um, I take long walks, long hikes, and I just pay attention to the words that come up in my mind. Like, what are the big words? And when I come away with those words, then I began to look at my entire year in smaller chunks, and they fall into categories that contribute toward those words. So like the beginning of this year, the words that came up were health and story. Your story is going to make more sense this year. So I read a lot of things about health, about emotional health, about my story. So it affects what I read too. So that's kind of how the year starts. Um, Orderly. Um, I'm not, this one isn't dialed in perfect, but I'm trying to make a few days away a quarter for myself. Um, And sometimes that involves going to see a mentor of mine. Um, So that's quarterly. Monthly. Uh, my monthly system is probably the best um, because it has things broken out per week. One week I go to see a counselor to work on my own things. Another week in the month, I talk to a mentor, Mm. learn about life, life stages, growth, what's coming down the pipe for me, teach me. Another week I work with my spiritual director to look at my own heart, my own personal issues, my own beliefs, that kind of thing, especially how I relate to the divine. And then the fourth week, I go and see a doctor. Um, I have a a doctor of osteopathy who does OMT treatments on me. And that's, um, that's my retreating for me personally. And then of course, within the month, um, I have an evening a week for um, once a month for my kids and I'm not awesome with this. I'm trying to get better with my wife. Um, It kind of has fallen off. We're in a really busy season right now. So that's my system of retreating is time away yearly to identify the big themes, time away quarterly for myself and with mentors. And then monthly, there's a weekly system I plug myself into to keep myself healthy. And this is really important because it's just what works for me. This is not the way you have to do it or anybody has to do it. 
But what is interesting is what makes sense to me seems to make sense to a lot of people. And as I talk to my clients about what system is in place for themselves, the answer that usually I get is not much. Yeah. Um, and so people are usually hungry to try this out in mm-hmm. whatever their own version of it looks like. And I have one of my former clients uh, who went through some hard stuff in her workplace and asked her what her system of care was to get away. Mm-hmm. By the way, I mentioned the book retreat comes from two Latin words, retraw hair, which means to draw back to a tract or a little literal space. So in other words, what are your tracks? What are your literal spaces you're drawing back to or your literal people you're drawing back to? Yeah. And if you can get those things in place, what it does, is it crowds out the unhealth. It's mm-hmm. kind of like staying awake super, super late at night. Unless you're an artist, usually it's not a great time to be awake. <laughs> um, you want to eat too much. You want to drink too much and watch too many TV shows. Well, if you're putting in place practices, uh, they're multiplying health. You actually have less space in your schedule for unhealth. Mm. So it crowds out the stuff that doesn't need to be there. And um, that's what my, that's what my process looks like. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. And yeah. I will include links in the show notes for your books. And just to verify if someone's listening and they want to reach out to you, is that okay with you? And is there a preferred way that they reach out, be it website, LinkedIn? Yeah. Uh, LinkedIn and website is probably great. I'm on all the social media platforms. Um but LinkedIn is the easy way to get me. And then on my website, Achata Coaching, A-C-H-A-T-A, coaching.com. And there's a contact form on there. And so they can find me that way. And I love to know them and work with them. So if any of you are listening and think, I want to go figure this one out, mm-hmm. um, my, my door is open. That's awesome. Thank you so much. And I'll make sure there's links in the, in the show notes as well. David, this has been... A treat. It, it it feels like a little mini retreat to be in this conversation. Does it really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love that. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And I look forward. We're gonna get to be able to have conversations in person in uh, the next few months. So that's very exciting. And I also look forward to to continuing the conversation on this podcast. If you're open to that, I'm totally open, Lisa. I can't wait for you to be in town and be my neighbor. It's gonna be wild. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to today's conversation and episode of the Make Life Less Difficult podcast. Editing is done by Joseph Burdock. Artwork is by Emma Burdock. I'd be honored if you took a moment to share this with a friend and or leave us a review. Together, I truly believe we can make life less difficult.